Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Very soon, we may have a report detailing everything the government knows about UFOs. Tucked away in the $2.3 trillion appropriations bill that President Trump signed last year was a provision saying that the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense must present a UFO report. This report will probably be more about unidentified aerial phenomenon and less about aliens, but still, we're excited to see what's in this report. It could be out by June. For more on this, we'll speak to Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post. I must admit, it wasn't until the past few days when former intelligence director John Ratcliffe started talking about this report that I even knew it existed and that I even knew it was somehow attached to that massive appropriations bill that Trump signed last year. Here's what Ratcliffe said in an interview with Fox News. He mentioned this report and said that there are, quote, a lot more sightings that have been made public. This is sightings of UFOs, of objects that the military has been unable to identify. Uh, He hinted that those sightings would be made public in this forthcoming report and that they would be dealing with sightings from all over the world. You know, and it goes by a bunch of different names. Obviously, UFO is the most common one, unidentified flying object. But as far as the agencies go, they're called unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous aerial vehicles. So they go by a a few different names. This kind of leads us a little bit down the line of what we might expect, too, in this report. I mean, it's going to deal with these flying objects, things like that. Not so much aliens, per se, alien autopsies. You know, I I love to kind of go down the rabbit hole on these things. But this is going to be strictly things that we've seen in the air, it seems like. That's right. And I think that's important to note. I think that UFOs often get conflated with aliens, with extraterrestrial life and activity. You know, some folks who are interested in this subject are certainly interested in that aspect. But there are a whole lot of other national security sector people who make a very logical argument for studying this stuff. And and they say, look, if there are objects that are flying over the country, over military bases, and U.S. intelligence agencies can't identify or explain them, it's prudent that the U.S. study them, not necessarily because they might be aliens, but because, you know, it could be U.S. adversaries spying on military bases or something to that effect. What was some of the language in that bill that is prompting this report? And then on the other side of it, you said there could be some delays because a lot of these agencies miss these deadlines a lot of time. You know, so why might we see some delays? Yeah, yeah so um, come with me down the bureaucratic rabbit hole here. So this bill, I should say this provision, it was included in the Intelligence Authorization Act, which was itself included in that big appropriations bill. But the thing is, the language mandating a report, it was not in the bill itself, but it was in the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the bill. And this is one of those distinctions that, you know, really it matters but it is sort of splitting hairs a bit. But it matters because, as one Senate aide told me, 
it's not technically statute if the words are not in the bill language. However, agencies often treat report language and bill language in the same way. And so the Senate officials who I spoke with do not expect the agencies to ignore this, but they did warn me that they could miss the deadline by a little bit because that has happened in the past. And while I'm talking about the deadline, I should say Trump's signing of the appropriations bill began a 180-day countdown. And, and so he signed it in late December. That puts us at some point in June, which is when we currently expect a report to be released. Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. This week has also been a very bumpy roller coaster ride for AstraZeneca and their vaccine. We learned on Monday that their vaccine was 79% effective against symptomatic COVID-19. But then, just hours later, U.S. officials said that AstraZeneca used outdated information and missed a whole month's worth of data. AstraZeneca said they would come back with a correction, and they did. In the end, we learned that their shot is 76% effective against symptomatic COVID-19, only a drop of 3%. But the damage may have already been done, calling them into question. And it's been just another misstep in the rollout of this vaccine. For more on the bumpy ride that AstraZeneca has been having, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, healthcare reporter at USA Today. There is only a 3% difference here, so not clear why there was such a kerfuffle over it. But basically, as you said, this is just a, a very good vaccine, as far as we can tell, uh, with maybe some questionable communications issues from the company. Yeah, I, I saw a headline and uh, it you know, just kind of struck me. AstraZeneca got their vaccine right, but the rollout has been disastrous. And unfortunately, that's just been the case, you know, across the world, really. In Europe, we saw the stuff with early uh, stuff about saying it's not effective for older people. Obviously, the blood clot issue. None of that really panned out. So the rollout has been pretty bad. We did get some numbers from AstraZeneca regarding those over 65 and how effective the vaccine was, too, though. It wasn't that the numbers were bad in Europe. It's that they didn't include older people in the studies over there. And that's why a lot of people were looking to this study in the U.S. to see, did this vaccine work as well with older people? Older people have less active immune systems than younger ones. And some vaccines, like the flu vaccine, somebody over 65 usually takes that with, with a booster, with an adjuvant, a, different, a slightly different vaccine than a younger person would take. So there was concern with the COVID vaccines that there might need to be something like that as well. But so far, we haven't seen any difference between younger and older people with the vaccines. This one is 85% effective, even more effective, apparently, with older people than younger ones. They said there could be a few more changes coming, not enough to really change that number, overall number. I guess there was 14 more cases of possible or probable infection that they have to examine. So the FDA is about to do a deep dive into these numbers. As soon as the company applies for authorization with the FDA, they will look very carefully at these numbers and they could change a little bit based on the FDA's calculations. But we think this is the right ballpark now, somewhere between 69 and 76 percent. We've heard lots of different numbers, but in any case, it's a very effective vaccine. It certainly meets the FDA's standards. They had said they would accept any vaccine that was more than 50 percent effective. So uh, it's a good vaccine and hopefully will help uh, with the rest of the world. This is a vaccine that's relatively easy to distribute and relatively inexpensive. So it's been considered a real possibility for helping uh, fight the virus across the world. Yeah. The AstraZeneca said maybe within a few weeks they'll apply for that emergency right. authorization. So, you know, we still have a few weeks to see what's going to happen on our side. And as you mentioned, the FDA is going to 
do a deep dive into all of that. You mentioned that this vaccine, you know, has a lot of promise for the rest of the world. What does it look like for the United States, though? What's the plan for AstraZeneca, at least for us? Because we bought a bunch of doses. I know there was talk about sending some over to Mexico and everything. The campaigns with uh, Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson have been ramping up. So how do we expect AstraZeneca to play out here in the States? So we have bought 300 million doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine. So that's a lot. And we already have enough with the other vaccines to more than cover the U.S. population. The government has released 4 million doses to Mexico and Canada of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Both of those countries have approved the vaccine or are allowed to use it. So they can use it now with the theory that they could return it to us later if, if we need it later on, once it has been approved or authorized here. In terms of, of its use in this country, it's kind of unclear at the moment. It's possible that we will say we don't need any of these 300 million doses and give it to places around the world that do. The White House has been hesitant to say that yet. I think they want to make sure that Americans are covered, that the promised production comes through on the other vaccines before they pass around this one. I'm glad that this turned out well. Obviously, we, we know that there was some drama throughout the week with yes. it, but the numbers bear out. It's effective. It's safe. There's no blood clot issues, at least in the U.S. trials, effective for older people. So well on our way with another good vaccine candidate. And one more to come. There's Novavax. We should have those numbers in the next few weeks as well. The earlier studies look very promising for that vaccine as well. Karen Weintraub, healthcare reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, we've seen QAnon grab the fascination of many people in the country. People have been hanging on every cryptic post that Q would send to message boards. And while many of the conspiracies and predictions of President Trump staying in power, mass arrests of politicians, and Satan is pulling the strings of the deep state, many of those have not come true, and Q's followers still persist. But what if one of those followers were in your family? For this last story, we'll speak to Albert Samaha. He's an investigative journalist and deputy editor at BuzzFeed News about his struggles to get his own mother to stop believing in QAnon. You know, my mom was an early adapter of QAnon. She started kind of telling me about the conspiracy theories there in like mid-2018, which was just a few months after those posts started showing up. But what was new was her belief in conspiracy theories that I found baseless. You know, I think one of the reasons I wasn't initially alarmed by her interest in QAnon was that it was just sort of one more conspiracy theory on top of many others that we had discussed. You know, before that, she was really in on kind of a, the Illuminati secret society conspiracy theories some Freemason conspiracy theories. I mean, even before that, our initial political disagreements began a decade ago when, when, when we were arguing about the Fox News or far right claims that Obama was Muslim or was trying to get in God we trust stripped off U.S. currency. So by the time QAnon came around, we had already had a bit of experience debating things that I considered misinformation. And I think what was different about this one and, and sort of unexpected to me was how quickly it became mainstream and, and how there were so many other people publicly supporting the same beliefs that she had, which only reaffirmed her own faith in QAnon belief systems. And it was almost like the rest of America moved toward her with QAnon. And you and, and your mom also had this interesting trajectory. You obviously became a journalist and it reached a point where you guys were kind of on opposite sides. And, you know, she accused you of, about being part of the deep state. And she was very religious. Don't write bad things about the Catholic Church or priests. Don't write anything bad about President Trump. Tell us a little bit about that dynamic. She was never really opposed to me becoming a journalist from the start. You know, I think she sort of believed in my, in my morality and in my center of gravity on that stuff. 
And so it really wasn't until until my writing started to push up against her own belief systems. So I, and, and then that became most intense kind of in the Trump era, because a lot of uh, my writing ended up having to be accountability stories about Trump's racist rhetoric, about his cruel immigration policies. And for the first time, we sort of had an intersection where the work I was doing began to run up against the articles that she held really closely. She had never really supported any politician as intensely as she supported Trump. And I had never written about any politician as critically as I'd written about Trump. And so it sort of coalesced in Trump era, kind of these two paths that we had been on for a while that had not really collided in that sense. That began to happen during the Trump era as she sort of began to see him as more than a politician and, and something closer to a savior. And, you know, my writing would, would undermine that. And so with QAnon, that sort of gave a framework to those beliefs because QAnon had embedded within it conspiracy theories about the media, about the right. media's complicity in a lot of their claims. And so it sort of gave her affirmation of what she had already been thinking in her mind, but now with some concrete examples and, and so-called evidence that, that people online were presenting to her about the media's complicity and about presumably my complicity. Tell me a little bit more about what you think drew your mom over to uh, QAnon and kind of believing all of this stuff. As I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, in your article, you wrote how, how she was very religious and she really didn't believe in abortion. Uh, you know, that shouldn't be done. Obviously, the government shouldn't be subsidizing some of that stuff. So in forming some of her political beliefs, that was a part of it. And then, you know, it comes QAnon and uh, part of that conspiracy alleges that there's Satanists operating pulling the back levers of the deep state and, uh, you know, they're eating babies and all this stuff. So uh, that kind of melds together a little bit. But what do you think drew her into all of this? Like, what, what do you think really, you know, sunk the hooks in, basically? I mean, we all sort of rely on the voices we trust to guide us on, like, complicated issues, right? Like, whether it's doctors or lawyers or accountants, none of us become experts in all the things that manage our lives. And, and so we turn to trusted sources to sort of interpret the information we encounter. Uh, and I think it was no different for my mom. She began her political exploration from the kind of moral center of being anti-abortion and being very um, socially conservative and, and very faithful to the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And I think that fundamental, that core belief is what sort of led her to trust into the sort of people that shared that core belief, that the, the anti-abortion beliefs, the social conservative beliefs. So she listened to, you know, for years, she listened to Pat Robertson. She listened to conservative voices on Catholic radio stations, to the priests in her homilies, and ultimately to Fox News. And then from Fox News to the far right um, misinformation ecosystem that we've seen really proliferate in recent years. So the slide was, was not sudden. It was a slow slide deeper and deeper into far-right extremist propaganda rabbit holes that at every step kind of opened another door. You know, like it was the, the, the commitment the Catholic Church had to prioritizing an anti-abortion position above all else mm -hmm. that, you know, led her to listen to conservative voices and to place her faith in the Republican Party, her faith in that led her to trust in Fox News, you know, who in many ways was a megaphone for the Republican Party. But once the doors kind of misinformation that Fox News spread in the Obama era opened for her, then it sort of opened the door to all sorts of other conspiracies and misinformation in less mainstream media outlets than Fox News. And then kind of once that door opens, it's really hard to shut because the more misinformation you begin to believe, 
the fewer common ground facts are available for me or anyone else to try to pull her back to, you know, to my worldview or, or pull her kind of up that slippery slope. Right. Um, and you wrote a lot about spirited conversations that you guys would have basically battling with your own facts. And, and what would she do when you presented her with information to the contrary? Obviously, you know, you're her son. She trusts you. You're a journalist. That's your job. So what would she do uh, when you confronted her with things that oppose her views? She'd present her own evidence that opposed my views. She had at her disposal a sprawling network of misinformation sources with precisely alleged evidence to refute my own claims. And all I could say is, well, you know, trust the New York Times instead of Breitbart, but she doesn't. She trusts Breitbart more than the New York Times. So any evidence I bring, I would bring would just like disintegrate into the wall of evidence that she believed. And so it, it, it couldn't really get farther than that. Like it wouldn't really get into a debate over the ideas because we couldn't even settle the debate over facts. And that's sort of the point where I realized that we were just sort of at a permanent impasse that once I could, once there was no source of evidence that I could present to her and she had no source of evidence that I would find credible, it occurred to me that there was just no way for either of us to cover any ground on persuading the other. Q is this person who is either high level in the military, has high level clearance, close to Trump. You know, the stories are all over the place. But that person's been posting on these message boards certain cryptic messages. And really, all the followers after that kind of go and try to decipher them as much as they can. They said that he's predicted a bunch of stuff. But some of the major things that were supposed to happen never materialized. President Trump never came back and took power and Nobody was arrested. Uh, you know, March 4th was supposed to happen. That was a big date in the whole QAnon thing. What does your mom say to those instances when things just really don't materialize and it seems to be that it wasn't true to begin with? Well, there's always a reason they don't materialize. And this was initially, I, I thought this, um, sort of in, this sort of pattern of false prophecies was a damning characteristic of, of QAnon. But what I came to realize was that this inconsistency was actually a strength of the belief system, not a vulnerability. Because the thing about QAnon is that it is constantly evolving, that even when things don't play out the way they were predicted to, well, here's new information explaining why they didn't play out. Here's new clues to figure out the new direction that this dramatic backstage soap opera has taken. So there, there were always more breadcrumbs to follow, always reasons to explain why something didn't happen. And, and once you're sort of in the realm of believing that Tom Hanks was executed years ago for drinking the, the blood of children and that the one we see today is actually a clone, like you've already gone so far right. past what someone like me or a lot of people would think is like ridiculous that anything can be possible. Like if that is possible, then it's also possible that the reason JFK Jr. didn't come back from the dead is because he changed his mind. And once you sort of place your trust in these voices, it's very easy to keep following them for every explanation every time something doesn't pan out. Albert Samaha, investigative journalist, deputy editor at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.